I'm Neil Chatterjee. And I'm Josh Siegel. And we are Plugged Plugged In. Today, we have our first debut episode with none other than Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He's a very important person right now as Democrats are negotiating the reconciliation package. So we hit on all the news of the day, and we also get into some of his background in in, in previous uh, interactions between Neil and Sheldon when Neil Neil was at FERC. I I think you guys will really love it. Welcome to the inaugural interview of the inaugural episode of the Plugged In podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Josh Siegel, and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Senator, thank you for joining us for, uh, for our debut episode. My pleasure, Neil. It is good to be with you again. I remember you as a uh, fixture on the Senate floor back in the day, and you were uh, very helpful at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission on a variety of clean energy issues. So it's good to be with you again. Josh, good to see you, sir. Cool. Well, we really appreciate it, Senator. And we'll get into you guys uh, reminiscing a little bit. I did want to kind of start on on some news news of the day, right? I mean, there's uh, reconciliation is, is, you know, this is an important moment right now. I mean, what's your sense of where, where things are, are going to land? I mean, will, will Democrats come to some agreement? Uh, you know, can you can you uh, get Joe Manchin and, and Sinema on the, on the same page here? It's hard to predict the pathway there at this moment because there's so many variables. But what is known is that pretty much everybody in the uh, among the Democrats in the House and the Senate understand that if we don't get reconciliation done uh, in some significant form, um, we will all be in very, very serious trouble. So there's kind of a force majeure, a political force majeure at play here. And I think that means that ultimately we will solve this. But figuring out how you get to solving this is not clear yet. And we hope that as Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema clarify what it is that their objections are, we'll have something to work through with them in negotiations. So if you think, and, and I tend to agree with your, your, your view, that uh, it's almost too important to fail, I don't want to say too big to fail, but too important to fail, that something will get done, uh, is that sense enough, you think, for the House progressives to be able to vote to pass the BIF tomorrow? I couldn't guess that. I didn't spend time in the House before I got to the Senate. I'm not an expert on the House and on matters involving the House. I tend to defer to the expertise and clout of uh, Speaker Pelosi, for whom I have great admiration. I suspect she will find a way to make this work. So you, like me, are a Senate snob. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm an admirer of Speaker Pelosi. You know, your uh, your Senate colleague, you know, Bernie Sanders, Progressive wing has has said he he thinks the House should should vote down bipartisan if there's not some more clarity on, on reconciliation. I mean, there's there's some stuff in there on on climate. I mean, with some of the you know uh, clean energy technology deployment of, of some of these technologies. Um, I mean, do you, I know you've said on its own. I mean, it's a it's a pretty there's some pretty good stuff in there. I mean, do you yeah. think that should be approved on its merits or? Um, I will again. I'll leave that to Speaker Pelosi to determine how best to proceed with the House. I'm simply not. Mm-hmm. expert in what's going on over there or how she's managing that. Um, I do have a lot of focus on the Senate reconciliation yeah. process. And in that, I think we're continuing to work our way forward. And we're actually continuing to improve on 
the climate aspirations that mm. uh, President Biden tasked us with. So I think between the um, methane yeah. pollution fee that appears essentially certain to really? be in the EPW reconciliation package and the carbon uh, pollution fee that seems highly likely at this point to really? be in the finance committee reconciliation package. Those are two very, very big steps. Now, there's yeah. the next part of the process, the Senate floor, right. where you know everything gets a second look. But I do think that in EPW and in finance, we're in very good shape with both of those measures, and that's an important step forward. And those would pretty easily clear a birdbath, right? Because they're Quite. budgetary in nature. Exactly. We think that that's the case. And indeed, um, the EPW committee has had I guess signals from the hmm. um, parliamentarians that the methane pollution fee does clear the birdbath, and that sends a very good signal about the carbon pollution fee. Yeah. Because Pretty the finance committee yeah. is actually given by the parliamentarian a little bit more scope mm -hmm. in these birdbath determinations because of the nature of its jurisdiction compared to EPW. So if anything, there's a slightly narrower gate at the EPW committee than at finance. Mm. And since the methane fee got through that gate, it's hard to imagine that the carbon pollution fee won't get through the finance gate. How, how did, uh, can you just give us a little bit of back, backstory? On how, I mean, how did carbon pricing kind of become a part of this conversation? It just, the, the, the consensus was that Democrats didn't want to do this. Persistence, like, persistence. Was there a moment or, I mean, has it always been there and we just, us reporters have been ignorant to that or did something happen I think here? There's, in been, yeah. there's been conventional wisdom about this that has been wrong. And people who weren't close to the Senate didn't understand what was going on. And that included um, some folks in the White House even. And I think there was a telling moment when we were sitting together in the Budget Committee Mm -hmm. working out as Budget Committee Democrats the $3.5 trillion mm -hmm. negotiated agreement and what in general terms was going to be in that. And virtually every member of the Budget Committee during those two long nights of negotiation and compromise uh, spoke up for a carbon pollution fee, carbon pricing. Wow. Virtually every one. Um, there were very few that didn't. And I think for the White House people who were there to watch and answer questions, they were witness to this, and they saw us in very real time, in live action, not trying to make pitches to them, but talking amongst each other. And I think they left that moment thinking, hmm. oh boy, this is actually <laughs> serious. We might have made a mistake here. Wow. So where, where is the White House with it now? I know there, there's concern about it's violating the, the, t the tax pledge, right? Yeah, but that, I think, is more mischief than fact. If How so? Yeah. This is a corporate tax. It's paid mm. at the mine mouth or at the wellhead or at the point of importation or at the refinery. This is not a tax on the public. And if you look at the other increases in corporate tax that the Biden administration is pushing for, Every single one of them, you could argue, if you believe in perfect you know, economic efficiency and flow through, every single one of them will raise costs for consumers, if you believe in that theory. Um, so if they're going to apply that theory to this particular corporate tax, it's hard in a principled way to say that, but it doesn't apply to all the other corporate taxes we're pursuing. 
So I think that's a bit of a, let me put it this way, the White House people who I've spoken with uh, at length and over a long period of time do not make that point to me. Would it be helpful for the White House to speak up right now and say, this is what we're for? We, we, we like carbon pricing. It's, it's fine. Um, I honestly don't know. There's a very powerful, malign, and vindictive fossil fuel-funded apparatus that um, can be deployed on fairly short notice to cause trouble in Congress. And the more this stays under their radar, the better. Mm. And I also think, you know, people want the Senate to prove it first. And I'm totally cool Mm. with that. Speaker Pelosi got thrown under the bus by President Obama and leader Reid after yeah. cap and trade. Right. She passed that bill. And if that had gone into effect, we wouldn't be in the emergency we're in now. But the Obama White House chickened out and Reid pulled the plug and that was the end of that. So for Speaker Pelosi to say, not so fast, pal, you do it first. I've, I've been down this road before and the Senate mm. and the White House undercut me. So you prove yourself this time is a very, very logical position. And I think it's also a logical position for the White House to take. Let's prove that you can do it, and then we'll work this out. One sidebar to that interesting Waxman-Markey experience from 2009 is that the projected emissions reductions in that bill, we've actually surpassed them, uh, even in the absence of that moving forward. Pivoting back to... If, if, there's a big if on that, and that's if you count the uh, expansion of natural gas blowing up coal plants and so forth Mm -hmm. as a pure carbon dioxide play and don't count the additional methane methane leakage Mm -hmm. that came from that. The methane leakage is a big question mark in that formula and we and you can't tell for sure. Was methane just not as talked about then? The the measure has been carbon dioxide when they make those Hmm. comparisons. Pivoting back to uh, to reconciliation and what's on the table, uh, is the border carbon adjustment uh, being discussed at all? It, would, would that be part of a package moving forward? I think um, it's hard to get that through a birdbath. Even with the carbon price? Dome- the domestic? Well, let me say, it's hard to get it through a birdbath. Mm-hmm. The president has very broad authority, as President Trump showed, with respect to tariff determinations. Right. So it's not clear how much legislative authority they need to do this, and they're going to need to make up their minds about what the denominator is going to be for the border adjustments. Um, is it the CBAM, which is the border adjustment that the European Union has come up with? Do they simply fit in with that right. or modify it and go with that? Right. Or do they go with a carbon price, which is a very simple denominator to compare right. country to country? Or do they go the path of um, energy, you know, carbon density, which is a very awkward, clumsy method, but um, is a possible alternative? Or do they have something else planned? We don't know. But what we do know is that they have said they support a border adjustment mechanism and then not uh, made any decision about what the denominator would be that actually was the basis for country-to-country comparisons. Uh, some of the other uh, climate provisions that are being bandied about, uh, one of the big focuses has been on the CEPP. Yep. Uh, this was the subject of some discussion yesterday at the Senate Energy Committee. My former FERC colleagues all testified, and some of them raised concerns about you know, impacts to markets and on reliability. Do you have a sense on, uh, on a CP- CEPP, and would you prefer a price on carbon to a CEPP? Should, should we just define, again, clean, yeah, CEPP? The, the Clean Electricity Power 
plan program yeah. of the. Uh, the show's called Plugged In. We assume people are know <laughs> Plugged true. In. That's true. And Smart it's audience. replacement for their initial bid at a clean electricity standard, which mm -hmm. they figured out was not going to pass the famous bird bath and survive reconciliation. So this was plan B, and because of what it is, it's in Senator Manchin's energy committee, so he actually has the pen on yeah. this one. It's not a question of he has to negotiate with somebody. He's <laughs> got to actually write it. And at the moment, I don't think there's even a draft so he's, he's not he's not writing it. I don't think there's a draft floating around at this point. If so, I haven't heard of it or seen it. So that's a very big question mark. Huh. Uh, my personal feeling is that, can I use a, a boating analogy? I'm a Please. Rhode Islander and a sailor. So mm -hmm. the distance between the edge of the boat, the gunnel of the boat, mm -hmm. and the water is called the freeboard. And as the freeboard shrinks, as the boat sinks, there are really very few differences in the well-being of the occupants of the boat until you get to the actual gunnel, <laughs> until the water starts coming in over the side. And then there's a whole phase shift and you go into total emergency mode and you have a real catastrophe on your hands. And I think we are deadly close to that on climate. So wow. I very strongly believe that we need to throw everything we have at the problem. That means the finance clean energy tax package, that means the methane pollution fee, that means the carbon pollution fee, right. that means as strong a clean electricity program as we can get through Senator Manchin's committee, and that means the border adjustment. Yeah. Those are the major pieces that actually drive so, emissions reductions, and I think we're in a state of, it would be folly not to be as prudent and um, strong as possible given the risk. So the, the carbon price might be, do you view it as in addition to the Correct. CEPP or as backup? If, if Manchin's not even writing this thing, that tells you maybe well, he's not. it has to be backup because we can't get a yeah. CEPP out of Senator Manchin's committee, then it has to be backup. But that's not what I would choose. What I would choose mm -hmm. is that we go to Glasgow with all of this stuff in our portfolio because I think that will drive um, aspirations and commitments in the rest of the world, and we have to solve this among the major economies of the world. We can't do it on our own here in America. What happens uh, if we get to the COP and we go to Glasgow and this stuff hasn't yet moved through the process yet or hasn't gotten through? What is the message that America takes we to that like gathering? Jerks. We look like a bunch of putzes. Yeah, the, the White House has said, you know, I've heard Gina McCarthy, the climate advisor, say, oh, you know, it's not everything uh, what's happening in Congress. We, there's, there's mechanisms. I don't know what, I mean, Good you don't, you don't that. buy that, yeah. <laughs> Remember how her clean power plan did. Yeah. So um, I very much hope that EPA will lean in and try to write a improved, better uh, carbon um, regulation. Yeah. But at the moment, I'm not seeing that. There's not a notice and comment out for such a rule. Um, I think it's really important to go there with a stronger plan than just what you can do by regulation alone, particularly if you don't have the regulations ready to show the world what you're doing. I think you've mm -hmm. got to do, like I said, I think we're in a state of real danger right now, and we've got to act with real alacrity. Great word, alacrity. And, and, and I love the, the boat analogy. You've always been very colorful about bringing attention to this issue. Uh, I remember when I was on the Senate staff, uh, I mean, even late into the night, you would go down to the floor and do these wake-up 
speeches uh, to bring attention to climate change. I, uh, I can't remember the total number you did. 270 uh, plus. Why'd you, why, why'd you stop? And, uh, and do you I miss doing it? No, I, I do miss doing it, actually. It was kind of a part of the office routine. Um, but the people who helped me prepare those speeches, they were all different, so we did a lot of work. Um, a lot of it was me, but I also had a lot of staff support. And to crank out a speech a week, a pretty major speech a week, was a pretty heavy burden. So I'm looking over here at Rich Davidson, who is like smiling behind his mask, <laughs> that this is over. And also, I, you know, uh, trusted and still do trust President Biden to actually get this done. And therefore, time to wake up doesn't need to be, you know, said any longer. I think it's now time to was pony up. Was that an were Republicans part of that audience, and do you f feel like they've they have woken up? I know you've you've worked with Republicans. You in know certain the Republicans areas. are in a tough place because uh. the public has moved on this. The science is now just abundantly clear beyond any cavil, um, and you know that they want to do things because they do things like the forty five Q tax benefit for carbon removal, and they allowed these um, climate mitigation pieces to get into the bipartisan infrastructure bill. But once you get near the core interests of the fossil yeah. fuel industry, you find the Republican Party getting very hinky because, frankly, my, my guess, a lot of it's secrets, I don't know, but my guess is that the majority of the Republican Party's funding comes from the fossil fuel industry. And I've called it in these speeches, essentially the political wing of the fossil fuel industry. But my favorite moment was actually doing the uh, acidification right. test. I did an experiment yeah. on the Senate floor. I went up and blew my breath through a glass of salt water, and I tested the acidity of the water before and after. First and only Senate exper uh, science experiment done on the Senate floor. It was late at night in the wee hours, so there was nobody to object. <laughs> but you could see the eyebrow movement of the parliamentarians. What the heck are you doing? You're not supposed to do this. But I did, and you could see the measurable change in the acidity of the water just from me blowing my breath through hey, it. This one, this is kind of for discussion for, for both of you, just as, as a reporter, you know, just kind of observing where Republicans are in kind of the business community who said, I know you're, you're critical of they might say something publicly, but what are they actually doing yeah, on legislation? But do you feel like, I mean, how would you compare where Republicans are versus you know, an API or a chamber. I mean, because the API and the chamber, they're saying they're for carbon pricing. I reported Until this week that they're not exactly uh, lobbying for it and reconciliation. But, you know, Republicans are, are still are not there on carbon pricing. They're, I mean, would you say Republicans are even behind where the business community is or, or in a similar there, there are Republicans who have um, been supportive of uh, carbon pricing. They've never gotten to the point of getting on a bill. Um, but certainly we've had plenty of meetings about it with different members of the Republican caucus, and they've told people that they'd like to find a way to get to a good carbon pricing regime. Again, I think the problem is that um, the dollars make a very, very big difference, and the fossil fuel industry is very, very big dollars. There's a sense uh, in the country now that you know we're so divided, and and there's just so much acrimony amongst the parties. Uh, but you know, I was here for a number of years. Uh, I had great relationships on both sides of the aisle. You were very supportive of me throughout my tenure in the Senate, uh, and and continue to support me when I went to FERC. I mean, do you still feel that you've got good relationships with your Republican colleagues, and that you can have, you know, conversations about these kinds of issues in a constructive way? Yep. Yep. I mean, 
you can have those conversations, but then it gets to you know game day, and are they willing to throw down on a bill? And that's where the the uh, limits begin to appear. Um, but you know, we've done a lot of good bipartisan work, as you've seen. We've done a lot of really good bipartisan work on oceans stuff, and um, you know, ocean plastics and pirate fishing and all of that. That's been one of my pushes. And then, of course, 45Q, the industrial uh, bill, um, the transmission of CO2. Yep. Um, pipeline, CO2 pipeline. Yep. yep. There, we've done we've done a lot of, of good bipartisan work in this space. It's just once you bump up against really core interests of the industry, that's where it gets very um, tenuous. Well, one positive example that uh, I lived through that you played a, a really instrumental role in, and I'm not certain that a lot of people know this. So uh, you actually held up my Senate confirmation when I was uh, going through briefly. to FERC, very briefly. <laughs> but what are. I appreciated was you had a very tangible point. You brought me into your office and you said that, you know, there were these possible FERC orders removing barriers to entry for battery storage technologies and aggregated and distributed energy resources. Energy. And yep. you just, you didn't ask me to make a commitment that I would do something one way or the other. You just asked me to take a look at it. And I'll say when I got there and, and to your point about game day, it took a few years and it took a lot of work to, to build a legal record that was defensible, but we got the two big orders done, FERC Order 841 and FERC Order 2222. And I can honestly say it might not have happened on the timeline that it happened if you hadn't, you know, kind of uh, pointed me in that direction. And um, you officially once you were in. And <laughs> all, of, all of FERC officially once you were in. But, yeah, but it worked. Those were two big successes. And that sounds kind of wonky. Yeah. But what the aggregation rule did was it allowed lots of small renewable energy sources to be combined together for purposes of determining how the electric grid could operate and what could get credit for being part of the electric system. And that is a big economic effect. And ditto, uh, energy storage was not part of the equation when the uh, grid operators are sitting down to sort out what their uh, supply is going to be. So opening it up for energy storage was a was a huge thing, and you've seen markets respond, particularly ours in uh, New England. Well, uh, I I would point and out Cheryl you know, Lafleur, your first my former colleague, colleague, is now the uh, newly elected chair chair of, of the ISO New England. ISO New England. How, how did how did you how did uh, what, what persuaded you specific? I mean, what, what did you see the value once you? I saw it was it was a market based solution to yeah. deploying these technologies. I actually thought it was a pretty conservative approach, and I will note that. At the time that Senator Whitehouse and, and, and Markey first raised this to me, you didn't hear a lot of Republicans talking about battery storage in particular. Now yeah. I've seen yep. Republicans here in Washington and in state capitals embracing battery storage. Yep. And so it's a, it's a constructive way to, uh, to get the ball rolling. And I was, uh, I, was, I was grateful to play a part in it with you. Now here on Plugged In, um, you know, we, we are here to talk about the critical energy issues of the day, but we also want to make it uh, fun and enjoyable and, and, and touch on the personalities of the folks we're interviewing. One of the things that I've always found so interesting about your background is that I believe you grew up um, uh, as, a, as a child with your family in the Foreign, Foreign Service. Service okay. So mm -hmm. you've kind of lived all over the world. Uh, two questions in that regard. One, you know, how did that experience kind of shape your approach to your career and obviously here in the United States Senate? Um, and two, how did you end up in Rhode Island? <laughs> well, for, first, my family's been from Rhode Island forever. So... Um, when I got out of law school, that was the logical place for me to go home to. Um, and as to the Foreign Service, I, I think I really learned two things. One, 
we were not on the champagne circuit. We were in poverty-stricken and war-torn uh, and highly divided uh, countries in almost every single post. And um, I got a very, very strong uh, dose of how difficult and um, unhappy life can be for a lot of people when there's corruption, when there aren't hospitals, when the roads suck, when there's nonstop violence, all of that. So you, you know, we live kind of in a bubble in America in which we have a lot of safety and we don't really think about those uh, types of lives. But having lived in those places, um, I treasure the bubble that we have here in America and understand that we need to protect it. And the second thing is, you know, we, we kind of, we represented something when we were uh, overseas. And it wasn't just the Foreign Service officers, their children were expected to behave appropriately. And we had families fired out of places when their children misbehaved. Um, their spouses were supposed to behave appropriately. Everybody was on the mission of representing the United States and making it look good. And so um, I got a very strong sense from that about the importance of our soft power, about the brand of the United States. Mm. My dad used to say, people love to tweak the eagle's beak, <sighs> but at the end of the day, when they're in trouble, we're the ones who they turn to because they know that they can count on our principles. And I got a very hard dose of that early on, too. It's really powerful. Uh, one of the things that I think was probably uh, one of the most powerful moments of my tenure at FERC is when I got the opportunity to represent the United States of America. And I was actually in uh, a part of Eastern Europe, and I met with a... Uh, uh, our counterparts in the Czech Republic, our regulatory counterparts, and the chair of the commission made the point to me that in no other country on earth could someone, could the son of Indian immigrants have risen to the position that I did as chairman of FERC at the time. He said it could never happen in this country. And uh, it's pretty powerful when you see through our allies' eyes how they view uh, the United States of America. And I'm, I'm certain uh, that experience that's shaped a, you a great deal. That's an extremely powerful force in the world, and it is a tide that has flowed in our direction since the end of World War II when we did the Marshall Plan in Europe and rebuilt uh, Japan and the countries around it. Um, and now I worry very much that we're wrecking that hard-bought legacy. Final kind of non-energy question for the pod. Uh, 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 plug for my my new friend and colleague, your former judiciary counsel, uh, uh, Chess Garrison has uh, has joined me in my post fork work, and he said that one of the th interesting things that you're working on, and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correct, it's not cryptocurrency, but like kleptocurrency and money laundering. Can you just give me a little? I, I this is the this is new to me. What what is this topic? So I have uh, a theory that. Um, as Samuel Huntington said, we are in fact engaged in a war of civilizations, but I think Mr. Huntington got the clash wrong, that the war of civilizations is between rule of law countries like ours and basically rotten countries that don't have rule of law, that are run by autocrats, that are run by kleptocrats, that are run by criminal enterprises, and pretty much everything bad that's happened to our country has come out of the non-rule of law sector in the last 20 years, and yet we aid and abet the criminality and corruption in those non-rule of law areas by providing protection for the stolen goods and gains that the criminals and the kleptocrats have looted out of their countries. And we've got, you know, apartments in New York City and San Francisco. We've got 
uh, accounts. We've got uh, a whole ver variety of ways in which we shelter um, the assets of the worst people in the world, which is bad because it encourages them, but it's also bad because it damages that all-important U.S. brand. I mean, if, if the rest of the world thinks of us as just a bigger, rotten yeah. Cayman Islands where the thugs and crooks of the world can hide their loot, that's not on brand for us. And so rooting all of that out, seeing that as a national security issue, making that a priority has been um, one of my goals. And I think the presidential summit on democracy, which I call the kleptocracy summit, is going to help advance that cause. And we just passed the big, um, what we call beneficial ownership bill, so that you can't have slimy shell corporations in America any longer. FinCEN at Treasury gets to have a look. Fascinating stuff, super interesting, way outside the energy realm. Uh, last question, I promise. Uh, Tom Brady returns to New England this weekend in a Tampa Bay uniform. Uh, again, uh, I, I know you're a sailing guy, but, I mean, you can't ignore Tom Brady coming back to New England. Who will you be rooting for on Sunday? <laughs> I'm, I'll, I'll still go with the Patriots when Brady – Changed his uniform. I changed my opinion. <laughs> we can't leave this without. So you, it's tr uh, Neil, you've been you've been photographed with. Tom. I mean, do you know, do you know Tom? Like what what's no, going I on there? I don't know Tom not, Brady, but okay, I'll, I'll root for him. Yes, I admire okay. him from afar. I've met okay. him. But uh, Senator, thank you for joining is, is us. He older or are you older? Uh, he is. Uh, I'm 18 days older than he is, which is pretty <laughs> oh, remarkable. Wow. I can barely get in and out of bed in the morning. And the guy's you know throwing 10 touchdown <laughs> passes already. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Senator, really appreciate you joining us for uh, for the inaugural episode of Plugged In. Uh, thank you, so uh, thank much, you and uh, thank you, Neil. Thank you, Josh. Good to be with you both.